Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Pray that you would grow us and mature us through it. I pray that you'd give us strength to endure, to persevere. That you would just come to us graciously and kindly now through your spirit. Give us life and understanding that we would follow and seek you with our whole hearts. We love you, Lord. We look to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I've been working at the Boulder campus for about six years and then recently went to the Erie campus, but work now in a role with global outreach where, between all three campuses and do some men's ministry at the Boulder or Erie campus as well as some preaching. And so I'm grateful to be here with you this morning with my wife, Hannah. We live in Broomfield and are grateful for the community here and to be a part of it and uh, love just getting to open the word of God together and to continue in the series that we've all been going through throughout the book of Hebrews. So I want to start with a question today. And here's the question. If you could go back to the beginning of 2020 and give yourself advice for the season to come, what advice would you give yourself? I think last service someone said to get toilet paper. Um, There's probably some investment strategies you might suggest. But jokes aside, you'd also know it's going to be a long season. You're going to need endurance. You're going to need strength to endure through the season that is before you. I don't think anyone's gone through the last year and a half, two years, without being unaffected in some significant way by suffering and pain. So maybe you'd say something like, endure. Get ready for the long haul. This isn't one or two weeks. This isn't till summer. This is going to be a long haul. It's a marathon and not a sprint. Remember what's important. Remember who you are and endure through this season. Now, if that's been true for the last couple of years and the challenges that people have been up against, that we've been up against, how much more true is that of the whole Christian life? The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not just one season of trial, one season of difficulty, but it's a whole lifetime of trials and difficulties across various seasons. And this idea of the Christian life as a race is something that comes up in the book of Hebrews, and particularly in our passage today, where the Christian life, the way that we are to live out our faith today as God's people and as Christians, is pictured under the metaphor of a race. Like we're running a race, we have a challenge before us, we have endurance, and we need to press on through the trials and difficulties of life. In the passage before this, Hebrews 10, which is last week was Hebrews 11, but before that, the author encourages the audience that they would endure, that they would receive God's promises by enduring, by continuing in their faith. Hebrews 10.39, the author encourages and tells them that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author wants his audience to press into this race, to continue to endure. And he says, we're not those who shrink back, but those who have faith. And then once you get to Hebrews 11, the author tells us, what is faith? What does that mean? He says, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we're given example after example throughout the history of God's people of those who have lived out faith, those who have run the race in their day and have persevered and endured through the challenges of the life of a Christian 
and who are waiting for their reward. It gives examples of people who, through faith, conquered kingdoms and enforced justice. And it gives examples of people who, through faith, were sawn in half and endured hardship. So you get this picture that the Christian life is one of faith, that it can be one of triumph at times, but also great difficulty. But at the end, in the passage leading right up to where we are today, the author tells us this. And all these, those who were mentioned as heroes of the faith throughout the history of God's people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They ran the race, but didn't receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So the author is telling us about all those who have gone, gone before them, running the race of faith, enduring, persevering. And then the author in Hebrews 12:1, kind of points the finger around and says, now it's your turn to run. Now it's your turn to run. So Hebrews 12, 1, the author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone before us and run the race, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some people have made the point that it's almost like the author is talking about all these people who have run the race, and it's like they're spectators in the arena. They've run the race. They've lived out the Christian life in their day, but now the baton has been handed off, and it's their turn to run the race and to endure, and we're called to endure. And you think about the history of God's people, that God's people throughout history have been living out the faith of the Christian life. They've been persevering and enduring. But now today, as we open the word, we are those who are running the race. Those who have come before us have already run the race. Those who will come after us have yet to run the race. But we are the people of God who today are the run the race of faith. And so the author is telling us, how are we to endure through the challenges, through the difficulties, through the trials of life as God's people running the race of faith and pursuing him. And we're found, we find several ways and encouragements to endure as we look at this passage. And the first one is that we are called to endure by laying aside burdens. And so in verse 1, which was just read a moment ago, we're told to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So the reference here to sin is probably more obvious for us. We think of sin. You can think of pride, anger, lust. These things that are obvious and you know what they are. You, you know the sin in your life because you say, okay, I know that this is wrong. And he's saying you should lay aside those sins because those sins cling on to you and they keep you from being able to endure in the race. But he says not just to lay aside every sin, which clings so closely to us, but he also says to lay aside every weight every weight, which isn't probably referring to something that's inherently bad, but just anything that distracts you from following and pursuing God. You think about your schedule. Maybe you look at a week and you say, man, this week is so full. It's so busy that there's no margin for my faith. There's no margin for my growth. There's no margin for me to be with the people who I love and to care for them. There's no margin for me to care for those around me? Where is my time going? What am I spending my time on? That could be an example of laying aside every weight. Are, are we filling our lives with pursuits? Are we using our money? Are we using our energy for things that are part of God's plan for us to endure? So in endurance sports, people always cut out as much weight as possible. 
I don't know if any of you are cyclists or runners here. I'm guessing there's probably a couple of them. Uh, I don't, I'm not really either, but I've picked up a bicycle before that was heavy, just a cheaper bike, and I've picked up also a bike that costs probably more than my car. And you can feel these light, really light bicycles, these nice bicycles that are made for the endurance, for the long race. Because what happens when someone buys a really nice bike, they're getting a bike that sheds off every single unnecessary ounce. Whatever is not necessary, it's not making it in. The lightest materials, the best materials are being used, strong materials, but every ounce that isn't necessary is shaved off. I mean, bicyclists will shave their legs to get rid of the drag from that. It's, it's every detail matters. Every ounce, every weight, every hair, anything that doesn't help for the endurance in the long run is taken away. Or you could think of camping. For me, I would prefer to go camping just from my car to like maybe 20, 30, maybe up to 40 feet from my car. Could be the campground. But I, I wouldn't mind carrying a big old cast, cast iron pan on that 40 foot hike. But if you're going for a, a 50, 60 mile hike and backpacking through the wilderness, you know that every ounce matters. You don't bring some bulky pan. Every ounce matters. You count the weight. You consider what an ounce means. And an ounce means something so differently for 20 feet as for 2,000 miles, whatever your race might be. And the point is this, that we know that there's certain sins that we are to avoid, because God tells us to. But the author is also saying, look at every aspect of your life and ask, is there any weight that is prohibiting me, keeping me from running what God has for me today? Is there anything that weighs you down? This can be the smallest thing. This could be like, man, I get on this app on my phone and all of a sudden it's three hours later or I open up this streaming service or I play this video and all of a sudden it's three hours later and I just wasted my time and it doesn't help me grow in my love for God or those around me in any way. Maybe it's something like that where we need to reshape, reorient, reconsider or maybe it's something larger like where our money is going. But the point is that we're called to shave off the weight, but we also need to remember that sacrifice really only makes sense in proportion to the reward. Sacrifice only makes sense in proportion to the reward. So, so here's an example. If I was to go out and buy $1,000 of running equipment, because I run once or twice a month for like a mile, it wouldn't really be worth the sacrifice. You think that's probably a waste of money. You can just use whatever clothes and stuff you have now. You, you don't need special equipment. But if someone's training for the Olympics and they spend thousands of dollars on equipment, you think that's of course what you would do. You need the best gear. You have the goal, the prize in mind. And as we look to this, ultimately our reward is Christ, an eternal inheritance that we're going to look at as we go on in this passage that puts into the perspective the sacrifice of the Christian life, why we would even lay aside something, something so small? Why would you meddle over a couple ounces? As we go on in this passage, we're told we're not just to lay aside burdens, but we're also to look to Christ. In verse 2, we're told that as we are laying these things aside and endurings, we're, we're to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in Hebrews 11, you get all these stories of these saints, and they're looking forward, but none of them were perfected. And now we're being told to set our eyes on the perfecter, 
the one who makes their faith and our faith perfect. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who's Jesus. Jesus, who went all the way to the cross, going through Gethsemane, crying or sweating blood in the garden, going through the hardship and the shame of the cross, enduring ridicule and, and hatred and being stripped and then being crucified, but then entering into glory and being resurrected. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the whole thing. He's the one that we are told then in verse 3 to consider. It says, consider him who endured fretting sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus so that you don't lose heart. And a helpful question to ask would be, how, does, how specifically does considering Jesus help us endure? How does considering Jesus actually help us endure? And the first way perhaps would be this, and these all three really go together, but it, it shows us a pattern that we can expect in the Christian life. See, the pattern of Christ's suffering or of his life and his endurance was suffering and then glory which might give us perspective if we feel like today we are suffering or going through hardship or going through discipline. If something feels off and we say, this isn't what I expected things would be like. This isn't what I expected the Christian life would look like. That may actually be an encouragement that there's precedent that Christ who went into glory and who endured in his race showed us the pattern of suffering, hardship, and then an entrance into glory. So we see a pattern of Christ going through the darkest night, giving us confidence that on the other side, in him, there is salvation. We see an example in Christ. We see in a beautiful example, the ultimate example of what it looks like to endure is Jesus. No greater endurance could be had than what he went through in his humiliation and then ultimately being brought, like we said, from that to glory. And you notice that we imitate the people we spend time with. The more you spend time with someone, the more you'll talk like them. Maybe you'll have an inside joke. You begin to talk and think. You begin to understand how they relate. We imitate the people we spend time with. And here we're being told to consider Jesus. Consider him. And as we consider him, how much more does his example affect us? If we naturally inherit the traits of those who are around, how much more do we supernaturally become like Christ by the power of the Spirit? 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about how we are with unveiled faces beholding the glory of Christ and being transformed by God's Spirit from one degree of glory to another. So we're to consider Christ so that we might be like him, that we might admire and love and be transformed into his likeness. So we see a pattern in Christ and an example in Christ, and ultimately we find that all of our strength is in Christ. It gives us strength as we consider him, because he is the alpha and the omega, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. One way you could think about it is, if you've ever gone uh, through a jungle or, or hiking through dark or difficult terrain. It's like if someone were to go through the jungle before you and hack away with a machete and clear a path, you know where you're going. 
You know where to go. You follow the path clearly. And in the Christian life, Christ is like that. He's like the trailblazer. He has endured all the way through suffering to bring us to salvation. He is the way. He's the one who knows the way. He's the one who has founded and perfected our faith on the cross saying it is finished. So that as we now endure in our hardships, we can know that as Christians, there is no unbeaten path. There is no hardship, no struggle, no difficulty, physical, spiritual, emotional, that Christ has not ultimately endured in. And when we endure as Christians, we're not merely going into suffering with hope that Christ will somehow meet us there, but Christ has gone before us into it. And we therefore go to meet Christ in our suffering. We can find strength and help in our time of need because he has been there and knows how to bring us through. And so we're told to consider him, to lay aside our burdens, to look to Jesus. And as we do that, we're told to lean in to discipline, to lean into the discipline and the difficulty of the Christian life. Hebrews 12, 4 through 7 says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, the author is making the point that you haven't yet resisted the point of shedding your blood, meaning that the audience at this point, the Hebrews, probably hadn't suffered martyrdom for their faith at this point yet. But he's saying that Christ did resist sinful men to the point of shedding his blood. And the encouragement he get, then gives is, ha, have you forgotten the exhortation? Have you read the Proverbs which tell you that God is like a loving father disciplining his children? Do you see your hardships? Do you see your suffering? Do you see it in light of God's loving discipline for his children? Have you forgotten what your suffering means about your status as God's children? Verses 8 to 9 says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we all had, had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, we've probably all had different experiences, either of being disciplined or respecting those whom have disciplined us. But the point that the author is making is, even an earthly father disciplines their children for their good, as it seems best to them. How much more does God our heavenly father, the father of spirits, discipline us for our good. How much more can we trust God and his heart in our discipline? Now, this is important because often when something is difficult in our life, we can ask the question, God, where are you? Do you care? Are you just upset with me? Do you love me? Are you present in my hardship? 
what the author is telling us kind of runs counter to what we often think because he's saying, look, when you see the hardship and the difficulty and the discipline in your life, it is not a sign that God is absent from your life. It's actually a sign that God is present and with you in your suffering because God disciplines his children. It would be much worse to be left without discipline. And Romans 1 tells us what this looks like. It's, it's those who are turned over to their sin, that the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness is letting people run full long into their sin without any weight on their conscience, but simply running away and being left without discipline. And the author is telling us, do you see what it tells you about your relationship with God, that he actually disciplines you? Uh, Thomas Brooks is an old school theologian, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he has a couple of great quotes just about God's discipline for us as his children in there. He says, God had one son without corruption, referencing Jesus, but no son without correction. God corrects every child. God had one son without sin, Jesus, but, no son without, but none without sorrow. Even Jesus the Son of God was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Which means that discipline isn't always a response necessarily to a sin in our life, but it's part of God's work in us to make us perfect, to grow us, to mature us, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. God has no children without sorrow or correction. You can think about it this way too. Whose children does a parent discipline? If you're grocery shopping this week and you see an undisciplined child in the grocery store and you don't know that child, I'm doubting that you'll go up to that child and have a conversation with them about their actions and begin to discipline them and reprove them in the middle of the grocery store because they're not your child. That would be awkward. Even with those who are close to us, who we love, we don't want to give much more than a little bit of correction and leave the parenting to the parent. It's so much better. That's the way it's supposed to be. They're the ones who have that relationship. And so on one hand, discipline is painful and it's a hardship and no one likes going through discipline. But on the other hand, the author is telling us, don't you know what it means to be disciplined by God? It's the evidence that you are a child of God. Isn't it so much better to know God's discipline than to know nothing of God's discipline? I think what this practically looks like then is when we go through a hardship or a difficulty in our life and we say, God, where are you? Why is this going on? Why has it been so long that this has been going on? How come it seems like there's no end to this? Perhaps there's the grace of God in which he's working and moving in that. There's ways that he's working so that we know and experience him in ways that we would never experience him otherwise. Maybe there's even a reason why we go through hardship that we just simply could not understand. Wonder, God, what are you doing through this? What are you working in this circumstance that seems perplexing, seems to make no sense, and I can't see how it works? The author is telling us to know the heart of our Father, that he disciplines us for our good, that he hasn't left us to the chaos and randomness of this world, but he is an intentional Father, in all of our hardships, whatever they may be. So as we have that perspective that God is working in our discipline, it allows us to lean into our discipline and to long for the reward of our discipline. 
And so we finally, we endure not just by leaning into discipline, but by longing for the reward of our discipline. In any race, the runner always has the end in mind. It's the reason someone gets up and trains early in the morning, goes to bed early, eats the right food, because on the whole regimen, because there's a reward, there's an end in mind, it gives perspective to the sacrifice. And in Hebrews 12, we're told what our reward is. It's the ultimate reward that we would be transformed to share in God's holiness, that we would be like him, image bearers of God, bearing his righteousness and holiness in this world, and that one day we would see God. We would see God. That is what God is up to in the hardship and the discipline of our lives. That is what he desires. Verse 10, continuing this conversation about discipline and earthly fathers says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the outcome of our endurance the outcome of our discipline is sharing in God's holiness and one day seeing him. Sometimes in the middle of our trials of life, we can kind of get the sense of, I I want out of this. I want the comfort. I want the ease of this life. I, I just want these things to be taken care of. But God seems to be up to so much more. Hebrews 12, 14, we're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord being claimed here that there's a holiness, a character of the Christian without which we cannot see God. Jesus in Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is sometimes called the beatific vision, the idea that we will one day be in the very presence of God, which we were made for all along to know and experience God. But I want us to notice two things. In order to see God, it requires holiness. It's the first thing. It requires holiness to see God. But the second thing is this, that God is committed to producing holiness in us through discipline. That God is committed to producing holiness in us through discipline. Verse 10 talks about how he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Then verse 14 says that the holiness without which no one will see the Lord And the author's telling us, lean into your discipline because God is requiring holiness in you, but he is also so committed to producing that holiness in you that he would not spare you the rod, that he would not spare you from discipline as his child. God requires holiness, but produces it in us. And therefore, in verses 12 to 14, we are told to lean in to our discipline and to endure. Verses 12 to 14 says, therefore, in light of what God is doing, in light of the holiness and righteousness that he's producing through your hardship and discipline, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the image is something like this. It's a runner Again, continuing in this theme of the Christian life as this endurance race, this marathon. It's a runner who has drooping hands, weak knees, tired, their countenance is falling. 
And God's saying, lift up your eyes. It's the image of looking to the finish line or looking to someone of encouragement and, and you begin to strive forward. You lift up your eyes. You lift up your face. You, you lift your drooping hands. You strengthen your weak knees. You make straight paths for your feet and you press in because of the promise of what God is doing, because of the reward that he's promised for us through our endurance in the Christian life and hardship. But in verses 15 to 17, we're told a counterexample, what not to do, what it looks like to not lean into the endurance, not to endure, not to lean into the hardship, but to change that, exchange that for worldly comfort. Verses 15 to 17, we're told, see that no one See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. If you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We're told, see that no one, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness grows up. And this root of bitterness isn't necessarily meaning just someone becoming really bitter. So that would be a problem. But the root of bitterness here is going back to Deuteronomy 29. And in the context of Deuteronomy 29, what's happening is God is speaking to his covenant people, to Israel. And he is warning them about someone in their community looking around to the God's and the idols of the nations around them, thinking in their heart, God surely won't judge me, and then falling into idolatry and presuming upon God's kindness and grace. Thinking that holiness doesn't matter. There's a warning that God gives that that bitterness that would be produced, there would be a poisonous fruit that would be produced by those who turn away from God among his people, and it could defile others. So what does this look like in our context? In our context, it probably looks like some, something like this. Someone in our church or covenant community thinking that their holiness doesn't really matter. That they can live the Christian life externally, but God really doesn't care about the heart. And so we begin to fall into the sins. We begin to fall into the ways of this world. We worship fame and success. We worship self-actualization, making ourselves the ultimate person by worldly measures, forsaking God's law, forsaking his truth. For us, it would look like someone believing that God does not actually desire our hearts to be committed to him in holiness while living in the community, presuming that it does not matter. And the author is warning us against this, that that could defile many. It could cause trouble in community if we don't truly submit ourselves to the Lord and then he tells us an example of this root of bitterness, and it's Esau. The, the message that the author gives us is don't be like Esau. And this is heavy, but there's, there's some helpful things that we'll see through this. In Genesis 25, we get the story of Esau who sells his inheritance for a single meal. And the story goes something like this. Esau is the oldest son of Isaac. And as the oldest son, he should receive the inheritance. But one day he's coming home from the field, and he's hungry. His stomach is grumbling. So as he comes home from the field, he sees his brother Jacob cooking a meal. And Jacob is cooking stew. Jacob's the younger brother, not the one who receives the birthright and the inheritance. 
And he says to his brother Jacob, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, I'll give it to you, but you need to sell me your inheritance. And Esau, in this decision, looks at the grumbling of his stomach and in a foolish exchange says, I'll do it. I'll exchange my inheritance for that meal because what good is my birthright if I'm dead? A foolish exchange in a single moment. And it's so easy to look at Esau as this foible in the story and say, that was a bad decision, Esau. I would never do that. But how tempted are we to exchange our eternal inheritance, heavenly riches, for the comfort and the ease of this life here? I think that's why the author is bringing up Esau, because Esau is a very relatable character for me and for you. The question we could ask is, what single meal would we be willing to sell our inheritance for? Would we be willing to sell our inheritance for a single click, a single lie, a single bit of gossip, a single opportunity for gain? The author tells us that when Esau sought a chance to repent, he found no chance, though he sought it with tears. Now, I want to be very careful that we don't miss the point of what's being said here. Because if we come away from this saying, it's too late for me, I've missed the boat, I've lost my chance, we've completely missed the point of the passage. Because the author has just told us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And today... God's grace is extended. The point is it's not too late for any of us. Jesus has gone before us, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who says it is finished, who has dealt with all of our sin and all of our shame so that we could be freed. And God is saying, don't fail to obtain this. It's before you. It's this salvation. If you would come to him, you could find it. And the truth is we've all, at one point or another, been in those moments where we've exchanged that which is eternally worthy for that which is worthless. But God is a God who comes to us in grace and now warns us that we would know his grace, that we would know his mercy, that we would not consider these worldly treasures of more value than our eternal inheritance. So the point isn't that the author's not trying to speak to the question of whether we can lose our salvation or any question like that. He's simply saying for Esau, when he realized the foolish exchange he had made, it was too late. But for us, it's not too late. Because God stands with open hands and open arms offering his salvation today. One of the great warnings that runs throughout all of Hebrews is how could we neglect such a beautiful salvation such perfect mercy, such perfect grace of God who went all the way to the cross so that every aspect of our salvation would be secured in Christ. How could we forsake such mercy and grace? God in this passage is like a loving father warning us, don't play in the street. And for his people, this warning is so that we would be drawn to him, drawn to him, drawn away from the danger and that we would endure in the Christian life. So we're called to endure by laying down our burdens, things that distract us, by looking to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who offers us perfected and completed salvation today. We're called to lean into our discipline, knowing that even through that, God is working for our good. We're called to long for our reward, because God promises a reward to those who look to him. And he has the strength to deliver on that. 
even through the challenges of our lives. And I want to end with Hebrews 10.39 because I think it's a verse that captures the heart of the author for his audience and for us as we think through the warnings, the encouragements, and the words that are given in throughout Hebrews. And this is what he says to us, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that on the cross he cried, it is finished. I pray for anyone just struggling with shame or desire for worldly treasures, Lord. I pray that no one struggling with shame, no one struggling, having gone into sin, would think that they are too far from your grace, but they would find mercy and grace today in Christ. Help for their time of need. Thank you for Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for our souls. Pray that we'd find rest for our souls in Christ. Lord, and I pray that we also do not consider the worldly treasures of greater value than our eternal inheritance in Christ. Pray that even the words of your scripture would warn us so that we might value and know the love of Christ. We pray for strength to believe these things, Lord, to live these things. We thank you for Jesus, the author and founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Pray that we would look to him and find grace and help in our time of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.